Is pornography a problem for Muslim women? I'm not sure, but if it's becoming something used more often than females, by females in the United States, then it's likely going to affect Muslim women in the United States. Because Noman, when I go to school, how many of us grew up in a school where we were the only Muslim kid or there was like two of us, a lot of us, including myself, right? So who are most of my friends? It's the general American statistics that we read about. I'm part of that now, you see. What I can say for sure is, um, again, from my cases, when I speak to Muslim men and women who are not married in the premarital, you know, exploration or courting process and this and that, you know, I learned that there's a lot of activity that can happen before marriage, which suggests to me that Muslim women are not as sheltered or non-exposed to their own sexuality or what's expected of sexual capital and value by men because sometimes they're performing these things because she lives in the same society as you, right? Does that answer your question? Yeah, I remember I had a conversation. Um, this was like a long time ago, but the first time that I had been, been or first time I was told that there was a Muslim woman, she had watched pornography was like, I was like, whoa, like, I didn't know that that was a thing for Muslim women. And to be honest, I was a bit sheltered about that as well, because I figured that it's just, this is strictly a problem for men, regardless if it's Muslim or not, that it's strictly a, a problem for guys and for young boys. One of the things that I wanted to ask was, you know, someone may be watching this or listening to this and they may be struggling with pornography. How do they reconcile their addiction or their struggle with pornography and their relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? Because on one hand, they're saying like, look, I know it's wrong to look at this. Like they know deep down within themselves, it's wrong to look at this. But on the other hand, they just can't help themselves. Yeah, it's a, I mean, it's a tough, it's a tough uh, struggle. Um Because we're talking about, again, you know, every person's going to be different, right? But when I'm exposed to something, you know, new and powerful, like, again, if I'm 12 or 13, dude, and I experience an orgasm, like, it's a very beautiful, pleasurable, powerful experience that I've never had before. Essentially, it's a, it's a drug jolt, a jolt of pleasure and, and you know, natural chemical drug that I can produce in myself. Right. I could also produce it from the ecstasy of finally solving a problem or a puzzle or learning something new, accomplishing something. After doing a great workout, we also experience these states of elation and pleasure. Right. And those states don't come with all the typical guilt and shame and remorse and anxiety and depression that comes from something that a person would identify as a sin. Right. So. A sin means we're missing the mark of the target to, let's say, be a good human being, right? And to do our best to represent Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in our limited time here, okay? Um, but for everybody's different. I think it's, you know, general advice is uh, what's the pleasure and pain that we're getting from pornography usage? 
And what's the pleasure and pain we would have if we don't use pornography? That would be a first good question for anyone to ask themselves, right? Is finding out the motivation, right, behind it. Some people are just curious. Some people just like, dude, I'm not traumatized. I'm not escaping from my parents' fights. I just like pornography and I like masturbating and I want to see all the stuff that's out there. Like, that's very hard to, you know, just tell someone to turn it off, right? Because your motivation and connection and love for God has to be stronger than what is right here, right now with one button. And that takes time, right, to discover and and unravel in yourself. And the younger you are, I think the more difficult it is, right? Because you, you haven't ruined your life yet, right? If you're 13, you're like, you know, what are you talking about, dude? Like, everything's fine, you know? I can watch porn and have my my cake and eat it too. But it's usually people that have been in it for a while, you know, like college has been sabotaged. Their marriage has been sabotaged. They haven't gotten married because of it. Like then people start to realize like this is an idol, right? It's a false God that takes away more than it gives. But that takes time for people to settle into. And that qualitative and quantitative relationship, you know, has all kinds of patterns, you know, ups and downs and but that's my short answer for now, sir. Yeah. It's one of those drugs that, man, there's really nothing else like it out there because it can affect anyone and everyone, literally everyone. You know, I, I know a couple of who father that are, you know, they're in high school and they've watched pornography, you know, and not just like once, but like they've watched it on a consistent basis. Mm-hmm. And it's like, man, subhanAllah, this thing you know, porn can, I mean, everyone either accidentally watches it or watches it intently, right? Because I've always said, you know, as a, as a very non-scientific rationale to, to make this claim, but I've always said that every boy or at least young man has intentionally watched pornography once, at least in their life. Mm -hmm. Is that reasonable to say? Sure, I'll go with it. Yeah, because sometimes, like even what we watch on TV, we don't consider consider pornography, even though it's absolutely pornography. Like Game of Thrones, right? Some people wouldn't consider Game of Thrones necessarily pornography, and we don't even have to go to like the Game of Thrones level. Like there's just some TV shows that are, let's say, more rated M for a for a mature audience, or there are it's adults for adults if you will. And there is pornographic elements, but we still don't classify them as porno, like pornography, yeah. right? I, I think a better distinction is explicit material and content. And then because people associate pornography with, it's like a world you go into. It's like the world of porn. That's why it's called pornography, right? It's like the, the world of virtual porn, right? It's like when I go to a website where it's like, here's all the channels of sexual explicit contents from this and this and this and this, and you're in that world of porn. So when someone's watching Netflix, but then there's a racy explicit scene, right, where there's sexuality, we're like, oh, that's not porn. It's like, well, again, depending on the worldview you come from, right, the five minutes of you watching that is, st- is the same as you, like, as if I took you out and watched a clip of pornography in the world of porn. Right. You're just not in the website of 
sex, you know, worldvideos.com or whatever, right? That's the difference. So I think that's a good, important distinction to make is we're exposed to explicit sexual content and messages through tip through everyday media, whether we like it or not. And that's also because the unconscious behind the curtain society is watching tons of freaking porn. But, um, but I think there's the relationship to sexuality, intimacy, human emotional health, all of that has a lot to do with development and family and culture and context. And then based on what society has to offer as far as coping mechanisms or outlets, we will have different relationships to those things, right? So, you know, there are people who actually don't watch porn. Like normal, you know, like not normal, you know what I mean? Like everyday Americans and even everyday Muslims or Christians, like they really, like, dude, that's disgusting. It's just like you and me wouldn't go to a website where it's all about different animals, like hippopotamuses, elephants. It's just videos of them having sex. Imagine it's just like, yeah, I'm not really interested in that. I'm not going to go there. It's not going to become a thing. I have a freaking profile and I have saved videos. But that's for some people, that's a thing. There's people who see pornography as like any other strange, almost deranged, degenerate content that it's just like, what a waste of time and bandwidth, right? There's people like this. And you could argue their fitra or their natural, you know, divine disposition is is still clean, right? For the most part, like they're and by the way, that also includes things like violence. One of the demonic ways to destroy us, you know one combination they love to use is violence and sex. You know, these are two things that if a human gets addicted to, you're basically addicted to two things that are counter to healthy, peaceful, fitra-friendly humanity culture, right? Because chaotic sex destroys family, safety, security, and love and intimacy, ultimately, right, for humanity. And violence also does the same, except it's brutal in different ways and can actually just wipe you out and kill you, right? So those two things are also things that, you know, we should also worry about that too. It's like our youth being exposed to extreme violence, like it's normal, right? Every show you get heads cutting a lot. It's like, dude, you're fit. You're people who have fitra, they should, they throw up when they see that stuff. You understand like how far removed we are? You know, like any soldier or assassin or mafia guy, you know, will tell you, not that I know any, like who, but my, the point is about when a human kills another human being, it's extremely nauseating and painful. And most everybody throws up the first time. Why? Because it's so disgusting to the essence of your soul. Isn't it interesting? Like, like you could shoot someone a hundred yards away. But knowing like your bullet made that person go down and they're dead forever. The soul left the body. There's something that makes you. Why? Right. So violence is also something that we've become very accustomed to. It's, it's very um, dangerous for the health of the human soul, compassion, mercy, all the things that world religions universally try to instill to help us survive as a race. Right. Violence is a fun thing now. Right. And so that's also another thing that we see growing um, very quick. Again, it's not healthy because it's not 
You're not designed to be violent for fun. <laughs> no, right? You're also not designed to have sex for fun, by the way, either. Or to eat for fun, right? Again, all that leads to addictions. Food disorders, sex disorder, violence, aggression disorder, right? But go ahead. Would you give any, or what would you give as far as practical advice goes for someone who is watching this or listening to this and they struggle with pornography? Well, the first thing I would say is Kareem can't wake up every day and succeed at something he keeps telling himself not to do. Kareem has to find things that will help him succeed and shift his focus gradually and profoundly, hopefully over time with consistency towards that better thing, right? So, you know, if I tell you not to think of a purple elephant every day and all I mention is don't think of the perfect elephant and text you, don't think of the perfect elephant, don't use the perfect pur purple elephant, don't talk about the purple elephant. What is all that's on your mind is the purple elephant. I didn't help your cause. So you need to wake up and think about the blue lion, the pink cheetah and the yellow, you know, rhinoceros and the purple birds and, you know, everything that's not that animal and that color you're avoiding. Don't even name it. You just need to know what it is, right? So if you wake up every day and say, don't watch porn today, don't watch porn today. Instead, wake up and say, how do I stay connected to Allah, to myself, to my family, right? To my hobbies, to my school, to my work, to my body today. Like you have to have an agenda, you know? You can't just keep asking God to help you and then you don't do anything different, right? That's not a real cry for help. So, you know, you need to um, recognize, you know, the key is in your hand, but you, you also put the chains around yourself. So <clears throat> I think that's the first thing is diversification of fulfillment in life and connection and trying to find pleasure and even dopamine rushes that are healthy and productive. Like there's nothing wrong with getting a good dopamine rush. Why, why did Allah have your body produce them? Because it's a message to your consciousness that you're in a state of pleasure and safety. And this is something we have to actually associate with because what's Jannah all about? Pleasure, safety, security, right? No more grief, no more anxiety. It's just like all, this, all the sensory, spiritual wonders and delights you can imagine. So Allah wants you to understand this aspect of your existence. This is all a simulation to taste the akhirah that's to come, right? And determine essentially where your seat's going to be, you know? That's why we also have evil and pain. You know, people also got to grow up. Life sucks. It's not going to be Jannah. It's not meant to ever be Jannah. And as long as you're hoping things will be perfect and you'll arrive to some seamless bliss, you're always going to be let down because the dunya ain't designed for that. It's designed to teach you the whole spectrum of things, though, right? Spectrum of emotions, experiences, states, pleasure, pain, and all the things that exist in between, right? Because that's the knowledge and experiences shaping your conscientiousness and your consciousness and hopefully will help determine better choices before you... You're gone, which can happen any day, right? So recognizing that whatever discomfort you're going through, evil, pain, rejection, loneliness, depression, 
you know, pornography might be a pleasurable countermeasure, but the reality is we don't, we don't think about the long-term effects, but I won't even tell you to do that. I just, I'll just remind people before you go act out again in porn or whatever it is, just remember how you feel after, right? Because you get a pleasure, but then you go right back to the pain and then the pain is even heavier. Because if I was sad today and I w watch pornography to feel better, after I'm done the porn, I'm going to feel sadder, right? Still sad from before usage. And then now I have this extra, oh man, I'm such an idiot. Why did I do this? And what's wrong with me? And Right? And then you, you go into this. So the question is, is, is the pleasure you're getting worth the pain, the price that you pay? Some people say, yeah, it is. And those people just aren't ready to work it out yet. Right? And that's okay because one thing I've learned in life is just because somebody's doing something wrong doesn't mean they're rightfully ready to correct it. You know, it's not enough just to be like, dude, you're doing something wrong. It's like, I know, but my heart's just not there. And that, that's why Allah tells us a lot of times some hidayah just comes from Allah, which means if you're all, if we're all students in, of God, ultimately, and He's the real professor here, right? Sometimes he's got a program, a curriculum, a teaching that's going to happen the way it's going to happen. And I've seen this many times in, poor, in recovery work where people have rediscovered an intimacy with Allah because of their sexual pornography addiction they would have never seen before. And that's um, part of this aspect of acceptance and submission to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's you know, methods and journey with everybody. The all or, all or nothing mentality seems to be the case for someone who is struggling with pornography because they'll often tell themselves that if I cannot 100% get past this struggle, then I will always be in this struggle, right? So how does a person avoid that trap? The all or nothing. Yeah. Thanks for tuning in to the Coffee with Kareem podcast. Don't forget to leave us a lovely review on iTunes on any platform and sponsor the show today at patreon.com. Links are in every description of every show. So how does a person avoid that trap? Think about like if all or nothing was, uh, if you're taking a test and there's only A and B as the answer, you may feel like cool, like there's a 50% chance I'll get it right. There's always a 50% chance you're going to get wrong, right? It's just as much. So, and that's a, that's a big percentage to risk, you know? Um, one thing is if we just as practical cycle cognitively, like the way we think of things, I mean, all of us have code in our mind programs that run like software and all or nothing or absolute thinking is a type of code or programming. In other words, the way we respond to cues in our environment will usually be like, it's either going to be the worst case scenario or it has to be the best case scenario. <clears throat> so one thing is, instead of thinking about everything being zero or a hundred, right? Uh, like we have to consider there's all these numbers in between, right? Zero to 100, it's a scale. Like for example, I'm, I don't have to be a hundred percent, hundred points in my Muslimness today. But if I feel like I'm 65 because, you know, I'm mashallah, better than thinking I'm a zero. Right. So considering that it's zero to 100, a scale and trying to maybe frame things more so not in a zero or 100, but a score in between. Third is think about life as having more multiple choice options than just A and B. You have to get into the habit of trying your best to to generate 
at least two or three other options than just the two that pop up in your head. That's what generally happens, right? There's only two ways this can be, or there's only two ways I can see myself right now, right? I'm either in or out, or I'm either kafir or believer. I'm either, um, uh, you know, pathetic or good. It's like, hold on a second. Like, let's try to see a spectrum here. And I'll just remind everybody that one of the codes that I live by in my mind, psychologically, and this certainly influences my spiritual religious understanding, is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, I believe, designed humans to be perfectly imperfect. You're you're made to be a mistake-making machine on purpose because without that, you can never be an amazing engine for growth, right, and transformation. And I believe that's the point. Like Allah put us here to scrape our existential elbows and knees to, you know, pop out our spiritual backs to, you know, pull these muscles to do. Because what else is going to make you utterly realize your proper place as a pathetic, fragile creature who is a slave of God? It It can't come any other way. It's when you realize you who is the master and who, how you need him and how you have nothing without him. Literally, without two minutes of oxygen, you're dead. It doesn't matter how much money is in your bank account, right? Or how many followers you have. You're finished. The laws apply to everybody, right? So, you know, if Allah created us this way, and my most my strongest argument for this is the first story of humankind itself with the story of Adam, I said. Right? Adam is in the best setup. He's in paradise. He's not lonely. Allah's like, yo, I'll make you a beautiful bride from yourself right now. You enjoy all this. Like you got a woman to enjoy everything with right now, too. It's not just to go enjoy it by yourself. Right? So Allah gives Adam Islam, teaches him knowledge and understanding and the meaning of things, puts him in Jannah, so Adam understands what Jannah is. Right? This is an amazing place. Gives him a, a wife from himself, a zawj. He's now become a pair. And Allah says, enjoy everything. And accept one thing I don't want you to do. One thing. So I give you the key to my mansion, Noman. You can enjoy my cars, my pool, you know, all the servants, the chefs. Just don't go in room 11. It's unlocked, but trusting you. Don't go in room 11. That's all I ask. Everything else, dude, there's thousands of acres to enjoy. And that's just a stupid human analogy. So Adam is in Jannah. And how does he fall for disobeying Allah or forgetting Allah? <clears throat> I mean, there's a lot of perspectives, but, you know, essentially what we know is different from the Judeo-Christian story. It was the tree of knowledge in the Judeo-Christian story. In Islam, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala already taught him knowledge. He didn't have, that wasn't the problem. He had knowledge. He knew what was going, what knowledge was. But Iblis came to him and used his human fragility and anxiety of losing the security and pleasure he had. Because he basically said, isn't this, isn't this great, Adam? Oh, yeah, it's fantastic. He's like, well, guess what? This is actually designed for the immortal. Because Iblis has been there for a while. He knows, he knows what, what's going on, right? So he's letting the new kid know, dude, you're not even going to be here long. It's like, he's not even made for you. So Adam gets anxious now. What's going, like, what do you mean? 
He doesn't know his own destiny, his own story, that this is going to lead to him going to earth. He doesn't know this, right? Because Allah said, I created a khalifa for the ard. That's how he de describes him. A caretaker or representative for the earth or the ground. It's never said for the jannah, which is the garden, which is a different realm, right? So Iblis uses this anxiety in him and says, you're, the only way you're going to be here forever is if you become immortal, which means you have to eat from that tree that Allah told you not to eat from. And it's a very specific tree because Allah says, Hada shajra, this tree right here, not that one over there. So it's all confused. Like this one, okay? Yes, that one. That's the same one. He said, go eat from that and then you won't lose all this. So think about it. You're Adam. Allah gave you a spirit, just taught you all the knowledge. Just You just saw him make a wife for you from yourself. And then he says, don't eat this tree. And then Iblis comes and convinces you to do it. This is who we are. We're imperfect, we're forgetful, we're weak, we have anxiety, we fear losing pleasure, we fear not being able to get more pleasure, we fear losing everything, even though the person who just gave it to us says, you're not going to lose it, right? This is who we are, right? It just takes weakness. And so to me, if that's the first story, there's no alcohol and the size of your beard and how many times you're going to pray and what you have to wear and what you have to believe. All it was was don't eat from this tree. So that's my answer, right? Is we shouldn't, expecting to be perfect, can, connects directly with the unhealthy, all or nothing cognitive framing of things, right? Because even Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in this moment shows the complexity of existential meaning that we'll never understand why the hell we're really here, right? Except for very little, let's be honest. You know, we all think we know, but we don't. Okay, not even the angels understood why, right? And Allah even didn't tell us. He said, I know what you don't know. Shut up. It's like, okay, it's your, it's your ball game, you know? <laughs> so what are we going to do? So Allah basically teaches us, says, Adam and your descendants, you guys are going to go down now. And your first lesson of, is Tawbah. What's Tawbah about, Noma? What does that even mean? Repentance. Recognizing that a person had done something wrong and being aware of it, therefore asking for forgiveness. Very nice. And this sounds to me like it needs certain personality traits. Number one, seeker of knowledge and self-awareness. Right? Number two, humility and willing to transform or change. That's part of Tawbah and what Adam Aysam did. He's like, he didn't go like Iblis did, right? Wait a minute, why am I in trouble now? How am I supposed to know? It's like, you, this guy came and bought, you know, told me I was just minding my business. He didn't blame anybody. He took, yeah, Allah, I basically, he bowed his head. He's like, I don't know what I was thinking. Because Adam also understands, yeah, what was I thinking, right? I, I was given all of this and told, just don't touch this. And then I still did it. <clears throat> But it's not like Adam Aysanam was, you know, eating cherries over here. And then he's like, you know what? I'm going to go and see what that tree is on his own. He was influenced, right? There was an external impact on him. And he happens to be from the jinn, right? And this is another very important distinction. It's not, there's no fallen angels in Islam. Angels are angels. Iblis was a, a high-worshipping jinn. 
right? That's why he got to where he was. And there's a whole backstory on him. But the point is, is this is this is like where the cosmology begins. Like jinn and humanity are now always mentioned together in the Quran after this, right? It's like jinn and humanity, jinn and humanity. So we, we influence each other. We have good and bad in both sides. There's demons of humanity, just like there's demons in the jinn, right? That to me is like, Wow, like, because I grew up thinking the same way. It's like everything has to be practiced perfectly and fiqh is perfect and this is perfect. It's just like, dude, look at the first story of our father, right? The first lesson. And then Allah could have destroyed Iblis right there and be like, you know what, dude, I'm done with you, right? SubhanAllah, what does Iblis do, Noman? After Adam gets in trouble and Allah says, I'm going to send you down to the earth and Iblis, you're going with him. What does Iblis do? He essentially just double downs. He's like, I'm just gonna make your followers go astray. Isn't that what a what a what a you know arrogant piece of crap, right? So I mean shaitan, the word shatana means to like rebel and just be in your face. Like that's the Iblisi energy. So he's like, fine, you know, number one, you know, I'm I'm angry that this is situation, I don't care, and I'm gonna do more of it when I get down there. And then here's the pathetic part of Iblis too, because he's a pathetic creature like us. He's like, but can you at least grant me life till the end of time so that I could uh, be a jerk and disobey you? Like, he's still, he's putting himself on par with God, but then in his own stupidity doesn't realize like how he is dependent on this master. He's like, oh yeah, I could die at any moment, like any other living creature. So I do have to ask that of Allah so that I can disobey Allah. Think about that. And Allah's like, okay, I'll give you what you want. But you're not going to be able to affect the sincere who heed my guidance and reminders. And then that's the tip for us. No matter how crappy you feel, guys, gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, no matter how many sins, how many times you've repeated it and told yourself, I'm not going to do it, I promise, I thought I may tell is it? Keep going. And if you're, the way you're going hasn't improved results, then try different methods and keep going. Don't double down on hell like Iblis. Don't double down on, well, screw it. I'm, I'm, a, I'm not a perfect Muslim anyways. I'm, I haven't quit porn anyway, so I might as well just give up on striving and just drown in right the darkness. Because thulm, oppression in Arabic, it means darkness and oppression, right? Opposite of that is basically liberation and nur. Because Allah shows us that contrast. So no matter what, don't keep oppressing yourself. And by believing, you can only sin. Because the law is, in yin and yang, if the same will or choice or capacity can make you do something that feels so bad about yourself, you also have the opposite impact. You can also do something that makes you feel good about yourself and proud and healthy and fulfilled. And I'm on the right track. That's just as much possible, guys, as whatever software is running now. Because remember, nothing came fully built in, right? We all got a basic assembly package, right? Our genes, our environment, our family. But you know, a lot of the conditioning and programming after you become, you know, more conscious in your agency is, has a lot to do with you, believe it or not. Right. I know you mentioned earlier about, 
you know, that there could be a young guy who say he struggled with pornography right now, but he also wants to get married. He wants to start this process, if you will. Is it reasonable to say that a person, you know, a guy, typically a guy could start this marriage process while also trying to, to let's say reconcile his addiction. Yeah, I mean, I don't feel like I'm always in, I'm not in any place to tell people what they should and shouldn't do, but I just, my insight simply just comes from my small experience, right. And likelihood of what my understanding of human nature, right. Which is, um, can you really worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala if you're worshiping another God? No. Can you really devote yourself to um, school if you're also working three full-time jobs? No, right? The reality is we have limited resources, units of energy, and capacity for will, even on a daily basis, okay? Um, and so everybody knows their situation. And I do know from, again, cases I've worked with that when men were more connected, sober, they um, – Actually, even if they did their courtship didn't work out, they gained more value and experience from the very process of being in that relationship, right? Because the courtship is about engaging the feminine and figuring out compatibility for long-term sustainability as a partnership. But that has to be done in a realistic way, right? And so some people, when they meet a woman, it's a catalyst for them to be more sober or to progress in their recovery. So in situations like that, that might be a good thing. But if I'm a person who's very insecure still, and at the you know the day she doesn't call me back on when I hope to it, I go act out. That's a person who shouldn't be courting somebody, right? Because their usage of pornography is still they don't have self possession, right? If there's more of the addiction is possessing them more than they have their own self possession. Right. So a person who has more of that self-possession is a guy who, let's say I've been he's been in the program or working on stuff for a year or two. And he's like, dude, you know, she broke up with me and I wanted to act out or I was going to go to the escort. And I experienced that whole, you know, cycle with my nephs and I was able not to go like that's a person who I wouldn't tell them you have to stop talking to sisters until you've never act out again, because I don't actually believe that's always the case for people. Right. You can have extended periods of time of sobriety, and some people, mashallah, they really don't drink again or act out again or watch porn again. That's That happens too. But a lot of us, it's a choppy road for a while, especially if I've been using or, or dependent on something for 5, 10, 20 years even. I mean, again, people who have been starting porn when they're 14 and they're 45 right now, we're talking 30 years Right. And you can't expect after a year of recovery, they're never going to act out again after that. Like that's not realistic, but it's about frequency and intensity as a measurement that is important to track. Right. And the relationship and meaningful associations we make with ourselves, intimacy, relationships and sexuality. All of that has a lot to do around how we're going to shape the role of pornography in our lives. Make sense? Thanks for tuning in to the Coffee with Kareem podcast. Don't forget to leave us a lovely review on iTunes on any platform and sponsor the show today at patreon.com. Links are in every description of every show.